grootste ervaring. En nu, ladies en gentlemen, uw attention, please. Big decisions have even bigger consequences in the world of marketing leadership, where data informs everything, second chances are rare, and ROI is no longer the only metric that matters. Please join us as we go inside the funnel. The forests are burning. The pandemic is running rampant. The economy is shaky. Truth is subjective. Jenna, what's on your mind? I mean, cookies. Any particular type of cookies? <laughs> I could really go for a nutter butter right now. <laughs> but I think what we what we need to talk about in the proverbial burning forest is digital cookies, marketing cookies, privacy, all of that sort of stuff. That sounds maybe a little bit more on topic, but not as delicious. No. A little bit more nutritious. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I'm Australian, so it's only Tim Tams. Not a butters and not a thing for me. So uh, <laughs> we'll have to sort that out off the air later. Um, but yeah, certainly it's a big topic of uh, conversation for a lot of people right now. There's a lot of misunderstanding, uh, a lot of fear and uncertainty about the future. Uh, and it's something that really uh, is getting a lot of, uh, a lot of attention and, and definitely is worth a discussion. So with that... Welcome to Inside the Funnel. Um, today's topic, as you've heard, is around, uh, you know, cookies and frankly, the digital version of cookies. And we're looking towards a cookie-less future. So why don't we start with, you know, just some, some definitions so we're all on the same page. Jenna, what are cookies? Right. So that's actually really interesting. I think a lot of people have sort of forgotten what a cookie is. <laughs> so a cookie is essentially just a little tiny piece of code that gets dropped on a website so that you can be tracked. So, dun, 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 so that you can be tracked. But what it is, is the way digital marketing works today is, up until recently, has been almost entirely reliant on cookies. So back in the day, you would target things, like if you sold shoes, you would want to appear on content that featured shoes or wardrobe or sports or whatever. With cookies, you were able to track which websites people visited, what their other online behaviors were, and we started to be able to do this really personalized targeting thanks to cookies. So the cookie is this little tiny piece of code that helps advertisers and publishers understand who you, as a user of the internet, are. How you behave, where you go, what you do, etc. For you, as a user of the internet, they're also super helpful. They help you remember your logins. They help you remember things that you've done before in the past. They help you to not have to retype and redo everything you've done on a website that you visit regularly. So um, that's that's the cookie. And I think it's, sorry, so, Nasser, if yeah, I may. Go ahead, Dan. It's yeah. an important distinction that Jenna raises there. And there's a, this is where there's a lot of misinformation flying around about this topic. Cookies are browser-based code, as Jenna said, and they come in two forms, primarily first-party and third-party. The first-party cookies aren't going anywhere. The internet will continue to run on right. those. The thing that remembers your password, keeps you logged in to your favorite commerce websites, uh, makes it easy to get into your banking, remembers your preferences, all of that stuff is great. And actually, that'll play a role, I think, in the future of identity management, and we'll get into that later in the episode. Um, the third-party cookies are the ones that... Uh, publishers and third-party organizations use to track individuals across multiple websites. The basic inherent security of a cookie and the way it's written does not allow 
the cookie to be read by a domain other than the one that deployed it. So we need third-party cookies so we can have uniform domain deployment, which allows those identities to be tracked regardless of the website that the people go that the users go to. Um, so the third-party cookie is the big, big concern that we have right now, and it's definitely the one that is getting most of the attention. So when we talk about concern and attention, um, I guess the, the thing that is happening right now is a lot of conversation about these cookies going away. If they are so useful for publishers, if they're so useful for consumers uh, of the internet, why are they going away? What's the driving factor behind that or the driving force behind that? People like you and me and the world. <laughs> consumers of the internet know are very very hyper-focused on privacy. Over the years, what we did as digital media people, myself and my teammates and others like me, was like magic to the average bear, right? The average person running the internet had absolutely no idea, or not running the internet, sorry, reading the internet, had absolutely no idea how that turtleneck sweater that they were just looking at on a website is following them around in a display ad. Like, they did not understand that for a very long time. But the world's getting smarter. Kids these days, am I right? Right? Digital natives. So people understand how the internet works. And then people go, ooh, weird, yuck. I don't want that level of privacy intrusion. So the backlash is around user-centered privacy. So is, is, that, is that heightened because people are more digitally savvy? Or are there other reasons why... There is backlash around privacy. And, and, and is it happening everywhere? So, I mean, I'll, great. So here's here's an anecdotal example. I went years and years uh, saying, you know, I'm not going to have any kind of automation in my house um, because privacy. Same. Right? <laughs> and and I, I recently put in a, a Google Nest and that then spawned a lot of nestlings. Mm -hmm. And you know, there is not a part of my house now that is not monitored by the machine. Um, oh, did you hear that? I did. Who's that? That's, that's, that's my Google Nest yeah, responding you. to uh -huh. me, uh -huh. answering me. Uh -huh. so, so, you know, but the reason I'm doing it is because suddenly, oh, shut up. There it goes again. Aside from what it's doing right now, there it goes again. No, Google, stop. Cancel. All right. But aside from that, it's pretty awesome, right? Right. But, but there we are. It's listening to me right now, talking. 100%. Yeah, so... So, so... so what is the driving force? Why the heightened concern around privacy? I think it's, it's a whole slew of things that are all converging at the same time. Do people want this convenience? Do people want this personalization? Do people want this automation? 100%. But they are learning more, hearing more. So let's just take, at, as the American in this delightful trio here, let's take how much press and publicity there was about Facebook alone in the 2016 election, not even the 2020 coming up, right? That made the average user that doesn't care about marketing, doesn't understand digital, all of a sudden, so many more people understand, oh, hey, wait, these companies have my information. Mm -hmm. These companies are listening to me. I don't like that. But 
what they do like is having a, a Google Home or an Alexa right. or somebody to you know, right turn up their music or turn down their lights. Mm-hmm. So it, it we're at we're at a weirdo right. kind and of. And I feel like we're there. in a position now where to quote um, to quote someone from our past, Nasser, that the the baby may be getting thrown out with the bathwater here. Uh, there is an overwhelming uh, heightened uh, sensitivity to privacy generally, but it's in response to things that are significantly more nefarious than trying to conveniently target people who are in market for a product with a product that they may actually want. And I think the spectrum is so broad. People are using the term security and privacy, and it's an all-encompassing term. Uh, And there are some major flaws. There were major flaws in the way third-party applications were developed within the Facebook ecosystem and what type of information they would have access to by default. Let me tell you, that's much more significant than uh, a a content categorization that Jenna's team may pick up in order to retarget somebody in an effective way for a media program. They both feel and sound the same to the uninformed, but they are miles apart in the realm of what you can actually do with that information. I, I promise you my media team has no idea how to interfere with your election decision. <laughs> we, we simply don't have those tools right. at our, at our hands. Right. And, that, and, and this is where, you know, again, misinformation and um, media's interpretation, the, the, you know, what we see on TV and mainstream media's interpretation of what's going on can really sensationalize these topics and create uh, a reflex in the industry where, you know, Google is obligated to respond to this. They're obligated to put into action. And they've announced recently that they're going to be discontinuing uh, the acceptance of third-party cookies in the Chrome ecosystem uh, by ne- as early as next year. They've also gone on to clarify uh, and to qualify, excuse me, that they're not going to do that until a suitable alternative is identified and deployed within the industry. So the need to be able to manage and understand identity and to make sure we're not annoying consumers with irrelevant messaging and we're putting the right type of information in front of them. It still persists. It just needs to be done in a way that is not there by default and is kind of being done under the covers, which is the way that the third-party cookie ecosystem has always operated. All right. So so do we see this as irreversible? Like, is this something that's going to happen? Is the cookie, the third-party cookie actually going um, away? I think that um, the the future mechanism may exist as some derivative of the way cookie technology inherently is 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 sophisticated it's simple and elegant and very highly secure by default um, I think a variant of that may or may not be uh, may very well likely be part of the, the solution but we're definitely moving towards a more uh, consented identity-based system. Uh, you just look at what's happening, and it may be a topic for another episode, the difference, the emergence of uh, CDPs or customer data platforms out of the DMP, data management platform world. DMPs, anonymous data, uh, not necessarily permission-based. CDPs, very much first-party customer data that is based on a relationship or a transaction or permission. So as we see that evolution, I think the same kind of thing is going to happen in the tracking and remarketing world with the use of cookies or identity tracking uh, alternatives. Okay, so so talk to me about this idea of a consent-based future. Like, what what do you mean by that? So right now, consent is uh, implied 
you know, legislation like uh, GDPR and CCPA in California recently, they add a, a much stricter uh, layer of control over that. And it basically means that as a, uh, as a, a consumer of, of the Internet or a data subject, uh, you know, we're all data subjects. When we browse Amazon or other websites, we become the subject of a data pool. Um, we need some really important things uh, with respect to our privacy. We need clarity or consent first, excuse me, consent to use my data, clarity around what my data is being used for, and finally control, meaning if I want to be removed from it, then I must be able to be removed from it. So you'll probably have noticed in the last 18 to 24 months, a lot of websites are really changing the way at the bottom where it, it makes you accept that uh, your identity is being tracked or that your information or your behavior is being tracked less than your identity. Um, that is a product of these uh, internet or these European and now North American legislations and uh, organizations making sure that they're remaining compliant. Historically, it just happened by default. Early iterations of that consent mechanism were very vague and simply made you click OK or even more vague, made you opt out rather than opt in. And now they're at a point where um, the consent has to be explicit. You have to choose specifically uh, what you want to be included for or not, and then you need to be able to revoke that consent at any time. Those things have come together, but it still doesn't seem to be enough. Uh, and there, there are so many loopholes in that. You know why? <laughs> you know why it's not enough? Because, <laughs> uh, okay, listener, listeners, however many of you are out here, at least one of you, right? <laughs> Let's call it Dear listener. listener. I think I like that. It's our <laughs> Dear listener. listener yeah. Do you or do you not just simply click the accept button or the X button and get the hell out of those pop-ups that have been on every single site you have visited ever since GDPR went way, into the effect? The same way that you've agreed to terms and conditions on any website. That's my point entirely. Right. So do you have the Instagram app on your phone? You realize that to have it on your phone and to log in, you have accepted all terms and conditions, correct, listener? Because you have. Anything that you use, you have accepted the T's and C's. You know, my favorite is this post go that goes around every six months or so on Facebook where people. Oh, you beat oh, me to it. I'm sitting here waiting to <laughs> okay, say the Nasser, thing. I'm sorry. You tell that story. Oh, yeah. The, the whole story. thing about. I, I yeah, it, it just it, it just fills me with delicious delight every time I see. Um, you know, the skeptical person that I know on Facebook who t who posts that thing about, you know, I hereby revoke all consent from Facebook to share my info. You know, it's like, oh, come on. Do you even understand how this works? <laughs> you are but... on Facebook. The Facebook is probably how they think That's of it. it. You are on the Facebook. <laughs> you cannot revoke the Facebook. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's my favorite. It, it is my favorite. I won't lie. I won't lie. Because it's always that guy, yeah. right? And it's always a guy. Right. But it's always that but guys, guy there's that who will post there's that. those people on mass that are the groundswell behind what we're talking about here today. It's you know there's there is a lot of concern about uh, people just want to know. I'm telling you, if this all went away, there would be a new thing to complain about, which is how terribly unpersonalized the internet feels all of a sudden, and how I can't find anything anymore. And how it's so much more difficult for me to shop for X or Y. And there'd be a whole list of other things that people would be complaining about. So I find that very interesting how there's this balance between, you know, convenience and, and ultimately privacy.
Google, stop. Cancel. Talk about convenience and giving up privacy for convenience. Like, is that the biggest driver? Because, you know, when, when we talk about this idea and, you know, it's everywhere today that, you know, there is no objective truth. It's all subjective and, and echo chambers and people yelling at each other. Um, there's very little trust today. Yeah. So do, do you think that convenience overcomes issues around trust? And if not, how how do marketers go about gaining people's trust in order to um, in order to gain their consent? That's a good question. That's a great question. So, thank you. I thought so too. Much why <laughs> Is that why you asked it, Nasser? <laughs> That's exactly it. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for noticing. So, those of us that have been in the digital marketing industry since its infancy, and we're looking at each other here because we are all of a certain finely aged age, understand that to go back to the prior just to retain trust is actually not going to help brands, or excuse me, users trust marketers anymore, right? If we revert and we go back to the olden days where the only way you can target people is say, oh, that person probably reads ESPN.com. I shall put an ad on ESPN.com. That's not going to foment trust between a user and a brand either. Because to Dan's point, everything then that, that they, all the ways they have grown together, mm-hmm. brand to user, <laughs> All, they all fall apart. And so that doesn't make the relationship any better either. So I would argue this is what, this is the balance. And this is probably the things that we understand inherently, but John Q internet user has no idea, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they think, I want to trust a brand. I don't want them to take my data and do anything with it. But they simply don't understand that that's exactly how they have grown to trust and choose certain brands over others. Because the ones that deliver customized experiences, the ones that deliver personalized ads, those are the ones who are like, oh, this brand gets me. Mm-hmm. We have a thing, this brand and I, right? right? <laughs> and so brands, that is the way that brands have built trust. Right. That's how they've done it. So I don't, I guess I don't have an answer. I, I don't have a solution. Right, I, okay, so, so hold on, hold on, Ted. So this idea that brands get me. And, you know, they're giving me these experiences that I find delightful and that I love and are perfectly aligned with what I'm hoping to see. How do they get to do that if there's no, if they've never met you before and there's no third party data? That's what what I'm saying. They don't. (laughs) Not in the, not in the digital world. Not easily. Well, they will through first party consent, like implicit first, sorry, explicit first party consent. But then having that follow you around the web and pop up in other areas is the problem that needs to be solved. Okay, okay, but hold on. What, what I'm getting at is that explicit first-party consent. How do they get that out of you? How do they um, build enough trust in their first interactions, bef- frankly, even before they interact with you? How do they get to know you in order to determine that, yes, this is this is the sort of stuff that you're going to want and love? Well, it's, I mean... Look at email marketing, like that's poised for a big resurgence. That is the OG of permission-based remarketing consent, right? You show up, you give your email address, they send you information, uh, you can unsubscribe. That used to be a joke, you never really could, but now you actually can, and and everything is great. Um, 
again, back to the first versus third party, if I appear, if I show up to a brand's website and they have uh, their ducks in a row, they can start to build a very complex profile on me implicitly, right? Yeah, but Nasser's a step ahead of you. Nasser's saying, how do you get there before they ever come to your website, right? And so, touche, mon ami, because you do have a point there. Their brands still become known to users today, right? They still, right? You still have to become known to a user. And so that is where those less personalized tactics come into play. However, the less personalized is still way more personalized than it would be if we didn't have the third party cookie. So I, I read a thing yesterday about, about personalization is, is a little bit of a pipe dream and that, you know, with some of these changes, it's, it's less likely. But if we think about the discovery and the discovery of brands, um, I think there's a term that I read that Gartner uses or that they coined um, that they called personification. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's marketing to, to archetypes. Yeah. So my, my question to you is how do you, where do you get the data from in a cookie-less future in order to build those archetypes, in order to allow people to discover your brand, like what they see, consent, and, you know, drop into that funnel? From your current customers. <laughs> you- okay, so, so talk, talk about that. What, what do you... What do you mean by that? What's what's the data sources you would look at? So your CRM data is your goldmine. <clears throat> your CRM data tells you who your current customers are, how they buy from you, how frequently they come to you, what they buy when they come to you, what devices they come to you on, how frequently they return, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those data points lead eventually to an archetype or a persona or however you want to frame it up, Right. Because we can then tell that the person that is, let's say we, we've got a, a super loyalist. That super loyalist comes back, they buy something six to ten times a year, whether they need it or not. Then there's, you know, the infrequent purchasers. You can see how just by me naming their behaviors, they become an archetype or they become a persona. So um, that sort of marketing is still super valid in the discovery phase. Um because what you already have, first party wise, is how you go and find like people online. Uh, sorry, could I add so to we, that? Let go me ahead, add to Dan. That. Go ahead. Because I'm still yeah. reeling from being told Nasser was way ahead of me. From, you're still reeling from being wrong, <laughs> Dan. Well, again, but I don't know because we just you just jump right back to CRM data, and now it's a chicken and egg conversation. You just went right back to it there about, well, your current customers. Well, how did they become current customers? Or how do you get new current customers if they can't reach out to you and build that relationship first? So there is a bit of a horse and cart situation here. I don't forget. Wait, wait, wait. Is it a chicken and egg or a horse both. and cart? Well, I'm, losing, chicken, I'm losing the count of the analogy. The chicken and egg is actually in the cart behind the horse. <laughs> oh, it's right. very okay, complicated. I wouldn't right. expect you to understand. <laughs> um, extremely Mennonite. It's great. Now, All right, keep going. Let's just take a moment here. Sorry, I got the giggles now. (laughs) What I was going to say is, guys, don't forget in a permission-oriented world, and I wanted to talk about this in a moment, about how consumer behavior, there's going to be education and consumer behavior changes 
that will fuel new systems that allow organizations to broker first-party identity data with permission from people. Think about something like Adobe's device uh, um, co-op, right? The device oh, co-op. Co mm -hmm. That's a form of first-party data exchange between organizations that can benefit one another. And it's a network effect where everybody who contributes is going to benefit the network greater than their own contribution because now I can... Um, I've got everything in order to build first party current customers, just as you said, Jenna, current customer data that are my people. But there is a way to federate some identity token between different platforms and with the right permission to start exchanging relevant information to make that user's experience greater overall through the cooperation of different first party entities. So it becomes kind of second party data because you know second parties like that in between one where it's first party of someone else that you have a relationship with. Yeah, um, right. So right. I think that's got a real place in the future once um, users get their head around the fact that they have a role to play. They need to make themselves aware and opt in to new platforms and frameworks that will ultimately appear that gives people to say, hey, I am a, you know, this is what the internet thinks of me. Is it correct? Yes or no? Do I want to be, do I want to participate in this because am I looking for the deal or the convenience? Yes or no? And if so, here's the line I'm comfortable with and everything above that is no good, but everything below that I'm okay with. And then I can start to enjoy those uh, experiences. So I think there is a second party ecosystem that could emerge as being much more predominant. Though technically, if you actually, not you, Dan Tembe, but you, dear listener, would pay attention to the cookie pop-ups that are at the bottom of every website You're supposed now. to be doing that now. That's right. Those are, yep. You're supposed to be doing that right, right now anyhow. Do I need just the cookies that make this thing run? Mm -hmm. Can I put on marketing cookies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Those are the options, right? Exactly. So, yeah, so not a lot of uptake, I don't think, no. on people <laughs> making choices and there. Again, back to why Google, like, it's it's... The third-party cookie as a default technology versus a mechanism that serves the same purpose that it requires a little bit more user-oriented control, like demands it, isn't just there by default. I think that's what Google is saying when they they talk about, um, you know, clarifying the position that they're not going to disable this until there's a viable alternative, right? So, so Jenna, what should what should marketers be doing right now? To prepare for this. Immediately panic. No. <laughs> Set something on fire. Probably, they should probably burn Wait, that's, that's our job, right? That, that's what we do. Come on. Uh, so what should marketers do now? Marketers should certainly understand the issue. Point A, right? Like you got to understand what's going on here. And you've got to understand how your particular organization's marketing team is using third-party data. How much of your marketing spend is based on cookie-reliant advertising. That's very important. I think secondarily, you need to go understand what the value prop is of your brand so that we can gain that explicit permission so that we can start to identify people that will want to engage with us. And then thirdly, I think the other thing that marketers really need to start doing is think through what can be done with the data we do know today, right? A lot of brands don't fully exploit their CRM data because they don't have the 
business intelligence teams to smash up the data. They don't have a good agency partner that can help them tie customer data to personas to media plans. There's a lot of different reasons why that really rich CRM data just kind of sits in the closet, right? But if I were a brand manager or a product owner, I would be digging out my CRM and really getting serious with that. All right, Dan, and you're moreover, on. Just to build on that, Jenna, um, technically speaking, think about a DMP slash CDP solution before it becomes the thing that everyone has and you're scrambling to get on board. That's critical to being able to organize and manage uh, your first party information appropriately and make the most of it when these second party and reciprocal relationships become a thing you can do. You're going to have to have something to contribute to that network. So you should absolutely um, start to do that and do it right. And secondly, uh, the, within the third party ecosystem right now, so your Google Analytics cookie technically is a third party cookie. Put right. first party data in it quickly. Compel your users to log in and identify themselves with you. And when they do, put your login ID in that data pool so that you can get access to their behavioral profile through a first party mechanism. So many people still don't do this. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know, but it's so trivial from a technical deployment perspective. Uh, and it's something we should all be looking at doing. And if you don't currently have a web platform, app, product, site, whatever it is, that has a login feature, which I don't know who that is because everybody does, uh, get one of those and find a way to give, <laughs> find a way to make a reason to get your users to register with you. And as soon as they do, you're going to start building that rich first party data in a much more, uh, a much more significant way. And you're going to be able to bind it to all the goodies that exist within that third party world uh, at the moment. So a uh, recurring thing I will be asking you uh, every episode, Dan, um, as a man who lives in a constant state of frustration, what about why, this let's subject touch on that frustrates you the most? Why, <laughs> yes. why am I always frustrated? <laughs> yeah, let's no, tell I, them why. All the reasons, all the reasons. <laughs> I, I, I think that this is something that, you know, you, the way you choose to live your life leads to a constant state of frustration, <laughs> well, frankly. But but that's neither here that nor there. What about this years, subject? A big contributor. To that. Let's be clear. <laughs> maybe maybe maybe. Um, but but I could see that as being the high point of your career. But anyway, um, setting all of yes. that aside, what about this subject frustrates you the most? Um, I, uh, yeah, I do, I do get frustrated. Most often, my frustration in my capacity within this industry comes from. Um, you know, the people that read one article and then have a really strong position on something. And, you know, there's so much going on in this space. It is so complicated and layered. Um, you know, the knee-jerk reactions to uh, the conversation we had a little earlier about this broad spectrum where one thing over here is having drastic implications to something way on the other side of, of, a, of a vast spectrum. Um, so those very... Uh, uh, reflexive reactions to, to what's going on in the space um, that can have really, you know, kind of crappy consequences to guys like us who, you know, who really feel like we're, we're helping brands and we're helping customers on, on both sides of that equation in a, in a meaningful and legitimate way. And uh, it's just making what is already a very complicated job even more so. Uh, and 
I don't think we need any more complication in our lives. And I think that's the most frustrating thing I have here is that I'm going to put another thing on my board that needs a solution um, to go with the 500 others. So you should you should maybe clear some of those things from time to time. I think you'll find it less. You know frustrating what? Let, let me write that one down as well. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, guys, and with that, thank you very much, Jenna Watson, Dan Tembi, and from me, Nasser Salul. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Inside the Funnel with Jenna Watson, Dan Tembi, and Nasser Salul. Until next time, don't forget to like, subscribe, and connect with the AC wherever you see us online.